Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I'm joined as usual by my great friend Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey, yo. Well, today is really an episode um, that embodies everything that we are trying to accomplish with this show because we are getting into the ethics of sport, violence, and also the academic study of the body, I would say, uh, the, the sports medicine piece, as it were, because we're going to be talking concussions with assistant professor Kathleen Bashinsky of Muhlenberg College, who's really one of the foremost experts today, uh, in my estimation, of, um, well, certainly the history of concussions and the study of concussions, um, and also really the, the ethics of pseudoscience around concussions in sport today, uh, and, you know, debates about concussion, public health, everything concussion. Uh, so this is kind of our everything concussion episode, uh, and I, I can't wait to get to it. But before we do, maybe just a couple other things. Uh, and one of them is I want everyone to just be aware that shortly we are going to be having uh, an episode where we were joined by a very special guest to discuss The Last Dance, the Jordan documentary. Uh, so if you are interested in listening along with us in that episode, uh, I encourage you to t- sort of try to catch up. Yeah, watch those Watch those 10 episodes. Exactly. Uh, watch those 10 episodes and realize, you know, let Michael Jordan try to indoctrinate you with his <laughs> sort of um, mystique, right? He's trying, to, he's trying to tell you in that show why he is, in fact, the greatest, why it was all worth it. Um, we may or may not agree. Uh, I, I wonder if you can guess what we think about that. Kathleen Bashinsky is Assistant Professor of Public Health at Muhlenberg College and author of the essential 2019 book, No Game for Boys to Play, The History of Youth Football and the Origins of a Public Health Crisis with UNC Press. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We've been waiting for this conversation. Um, And so I want to get right into it. But before we do, I have to ask you the question uh, that we ask everyone. And that is, how is the pandemic treating you in Allentown, Pennsylvania? So far, I'm doing well. I actually think my my family's biggest concern was uh, my 95-year-old grandfather. And we got him moved to a safer spot Um, here in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's definitely a relief. here in Pennsylvania, where we are, we've been very fortunate um, that we haven't had the issue of exceeding uh, the ICU bed capacity. Um, but I do think there are some concerns about reopening. Where I'm at in the Lehigh Valley, we have a fair number of um, people that work in warehouses, like shipping, mm-hmm. um, and also a, a fairly sizable health system. So there's a number of people here who are essential workers. So there's definitely concerns about how to protect their safety. But overall, um, things have been going as well as possible. Well, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm relieved to hear that. Uh, so, and, and of course, we should say that you are really the foremost expert we've had so far on the show uh, in terms of the pandemic itself as someone who works in public health uh, and teaches on public health. So we're going to be... Um, 
uh, falling back on your expertise a bit, I think, as we get on with the show. Um, but the issue we're going to start with is not um, COVID-19, but uh, head injury, concussions, especially in football. Uh, and I want to start with something you wrote a day before the Super Bowl this year in The Atlantic, uh, a piece that we will certainly link in the show notes. It's an it's a absolutely wonderful piece. You wrote, quote, in the past decade or so, the early deaths of NFL players by suicide and other causes, not to mention the growing body of scientific literature on chron chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a brain ailment associated with repeated concussions, have drawn new attention to the dangers of tackle football. Today's concussion crisis might give the impression that these dangers were not well understood in the past. In fact, the physical harms associated with the sport have never been in any, in any doubt. To continue to feign ignorance of them, to keep letting boys not yet in their teens play tackle football is not just unwise, but an abdication of moral responsibility for children's welfare. Uh, end quote. This is a strong and I would say exceptionally welcome claim around here on this show, um, but I think perhaps one that we should work backwards to elucidate just a little bit. So um, to do that, could you start maybe by giving us a rundown on the dangers of football and head injury as you understand them? What is traumatic brain injury? What is CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy? And how are they linked to football? And then perhaps more broadly, why is it incumbent upon all of us to think of football as such a significant threat to public health? Certainly. So starting with the question of just what is a traumatic brain injury, um, it's essentially a disruption in the brain's normal function. And it's something that is often associated with a hit to the head, but you don't have to have a direct hit to the head. You need force that gets transferred to the brain, and that can happen with a direct hit to the head, but it can also happen uh, with a sort of fast stop-start motion um, or with a hit to another part of the body where the force gets transferred to the brain. Uh, so an example I often like to give is uh, in thinking about a car crash, uh, the example of whiplash, you don't have to directly hit your head on the dashboard to have an injury there, but it's that sort of fast stop-start that can, that can cause that. Um, and another important point about traumatic brain injuries is you don't need uh, necessarily to have loss of consciousness. You can, but it's not uh, a, an essential or required part of what defines a traumatic brain injury. Um, and the other reason it's sort of a, a challenging uh, injury is that it has a really broad range of symptoms. And these can include uh, headache, confusion, dizziness, um, blurred vision, behavior or mood changes, trouble with memory or concentration. Um, so it's, it's a challenging uh, condition with a lot of symptoms. And it's linked with CTE, which is short for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a long-term uh, chronic degenerative brain decision, uh, uh, disease, a brain condition that's been associated with um, cumulative brain trauma. So in other words, it doesn't seem as though it's one single impact or one single injury that's most associated with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but rather the accumulation over time of multiple impacts. And so the reason this is particularly associated with collision sports like football is that in a sport like tackle football, 
built into the very essence of the sport are repeated collisions. Um, and so you have these repeated traumatic impacts to the brain. Uh, sometimes they cause symptoms. Sometimes they don't cause symptoms um, or sort of immediate uh, obvious harm. But the concern is they are causing cumulative damage to the brain over time and that that could add up um, to ultimately down the road cause this long-term degenerative brain condition. Uh, it's been identified in quite a few football players at this point. Um, it's also been identified in hockey players and other uh, athletes in collision sports. It's also been identified um, in military personnel uh, and in other groups that are experiencing repeated brain trauma. So we're also certainly concerned about victims of intimate partner violence. Um, there's a few mental health disorders that are associated with repetitive headbanging behavior. So basically any situation where you have repeated um, brain trauma is something we might worry about in terms of the long-term impact. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, so with that kind of foundation now, thinking about sort of the, the medical dimensions of head injury, I want to try to now push into the kind of ethical realm um, and tease out some of the dimensions of considering perhaps different age levels of football, because I think that's something that's sort of not just implicit, it's really explicit in your piece from The Atlantic I read from. Uh, you said again, specifically about the abdication of moral responsibility for children's welfare in that piece. Um, and of course, your book, again, is about this sort of note, this, this, this football is a children's game in that sense. But um, I want to basically ask you, is your disposition to the harm of football different for youth, high school, college, and professional levels? Are there distinct health and ethical questions to consider in each of these different contexts for you? Uh, yeah, for me, yes. I think there are serious ethical concerns in all of the contexts, but I do think they're distinct. Uh, and in particular, most of my work has focused on youth, which I've defined as high school age or younger, or you know, under, under age 18, um, for a couple of reasons. One is that the overwhelming majority of football players are kids. Uh, only a very tiny percent make it to play at the college level, let alone the NFL level. So in fact, well over 95% of Americans who play tackle football are children. Um, and so from a public health point of view, in terms of thinking of this as a, as a population health issue, the population that's most affected is children. And that's where the, the vast majority of the exposure to brain trauma is happening. But in terms of the ethics, I also do think children's participation raises um, unique ethical concerns because there really is not any possibility of informed consent. I think there are also concerns which we could talk about, about whether informed consent is actually happening at the college or professional level. Yes, um, I'd love to talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's absolutely concern there as well. But I think with children, um, they're sort of by definition not able to give informed consent because children, and, and we know that there's obviously children who are you know, as young as age six, seven, eight, who are playing tackle football, aren't able um, to necessarily comprehend or grasp the, the short and long-term potential risks. Um, and so I think this is fundamentally an adult decision. And so the ethical question is, um, to my mind, 
uh, what risks can adults impose upon children. And I think the risks to the brain raise particular ethical issues, both because our brains are so essential to our identity as human beings, and also because brain injuries are very difficult to treat. Uh, the very corny line I found myself saying over and over is that um, we can replace knees and hips, but we can't replace brains. Uh, we just mm -hmm. don't have a way to sort of um, repair that trauma in the same kind of way. And so that makes the public health point of view or the, the prevention uh, piece of this, I think, all the more important. And so I think prevention among children who can't um, consent to these kinds of risks is a particularly important ethical issue. Yeah, look, and I, and I think that's absolutely undeniable. Um, so, like, I do want to probe a little bit on the college piece, but uh, I think when it comes to children under eighteen, I mean, it, as someone who's like raised as a Canadian um, in Toronto, kids were not playing like Pop Warner style football, uh, at least in the kind of communities I was in in Toronto. Like, we were playing sports as youth. We were playing soccer, right? We were playing basketball. We were playing baseball in various forms. Uh, I wasn't, but most were playing hockey, uh, but you know, people weren't playing football at that age. Um, and it was not uncommon at all for people to start playing football in high school. And, I, I, and again, I completely take your point on high school being uh, still a very problematic site. Um, but it was, it was absolutely jarring for me even to come down to North Carolina and see um, advertisements on the side of the road for Pop Warner for children enrolling children at the age of five, for instance, in football. Uh, it's, it's, hard for me to wrap my head around. And I do think that there's a sort of way in which it's just, it's such a part of the fabric of the culture here in the United States that it kind of ideologically gets internalized by people as sort of a legitimate, reasonable thing. But it's one of those moments where when you have like that sort of outsider's almost anthropological perspective on it, it's really hard to wrap one's head around for me, um, the idea of kids playing this game, because it's just to me impossible to justify. Um, but if I'm going to shift to the college piece, because this is one where I think it starts to get messy for people, right? Like I think many people would take on the argument you're making here about children's football, children, uh, folks under 18. But in college, um, I think it starts to really shift where the vast majority still of popular opinion is kind of on side of this, again, really essential cultural dimension of US society, college football. Um, and indeed, you know, it's it's in the news right now, uh, today, um, and I'm, this podcast, you know, we'll be releasing this a little bit after um, we've recorded today, but um, so, you know, people will be looking back at this, will be new events, but the news that just came out at the time we're recording is that well, a couple of things. One, that the uh, athletic director at Ohio State University has said he wants to have 20 to 30,000 fans in the stadium at college football games this fall, which um, from a <laughs> pandemic perspective is eye-opening to say the least. Uh, and we've also heard that uh, the NCAA is allowing so-called voluntary workouts for football, men's basketball, and women's basketball players starting, I believe, June 1st. And, and that word voluntary really pops here, right? Because it gets to the heart of this question about what is and isn't consensual in the context of college sport, right? Like to what extent is a voluntary workout actually voluntary? Of course, it's something we could ask. But the bigger issue I want to ask here today with this topic is to what extent is participating in football, trying to get a scholarship to college through football as consensual as it seems. I mean, on one level, you know, there is no gun to the head that's literally forcing players to participate. And so in that sense, of course, players are indeed signing up and, and many are very enthusiastic 
of course, to get scholarships to play college football. But if we look at that alone and ignore the fundamental structural inequality, especially racial structural inequality in the United States, which systematically denies opportunity to individuals outside of avenues such as sport. When we think of the context of a system of higher education that is profoundly inaccessible um, to the majority of Americans and requires um, unthinkable from the standpoint of a Canadian debt loads to carry uh, and has produced a crisis in this country that is still unfolding as we speak. Um, to me, the question of consent really becomes complicated, right? Because when we start to think of it in those terms, the question might actually be like individuals may be simultaneously signing up, if you will, for college football, even as they understand that there is a potential devastating cost to them that they are very anxious about, right? Like they, there's an ambivalence that comes with it. Maybe it seems like the best available option. And that's not an, irrash, an irrational position is what I'm trying to say. It's not irrational to think it might be a really good option. But it is, uh, I think, profoundly unethical that we have put people in a position that that might realistically be a good option for them. Uh, just curious if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, I think my, my main thoughts are agreement, effectively. I think it, it's not a sort of, sort of pure disinterested um, choice to to take these kinds of risks and i think you're absolutely right that uh the demographics we see bear this out um that the people who are most likely to try to obtain a, a college scholarship are disproportionately african-american are disproportionately poor um are disproportionately from marginalized communities and there's very good reasons for that um i think we we also should make the point that you don't have college football without that youth football pipeline. Um, yeah. So having the pipeline to even get to college football involves taking the risks at that childhood age um, and that some of the decisions have been made when you're 12 or 14 or 16 um, on your behalf by adults um, to sort of put you on that path. Uh, so I think I also think your point is very well taken about um, what is meant by voluntary. Um, and if your college scholarship is dependent on you participating in a workout or being on a team, I just don't think we can sort of treat that as a sort of purely voluntary activity. Um, so no, I don't think, I don't think uh, college football is something we can look at and say, well, we've resolved our issues of informed consent. These are adults. There's nothing to worry about here. Um, I think turning 18 certainly means that you have adult status in our society, but I think you're still operating in these really um, unjust structures, and you're also not necessarily operating with access to complete information. Um, there's not sort of a, a provision to all college players of here in great detail, all the possible risks that you're taking on and sort of a full provision of that information. And there's not a context in which you can sort of make um, a choice that's completely, you know, separate from the structural issues that you've just described. In your book, this kind of really brings me to a, a, something I'm interested in hearing about, because in your book, No no Game for Boys to Play, you highlighted how uh, in the post-war United States, high school football was kind of celebrated as this sort of moral sport for young boys. 
one that sort of um, teaches and socializes um, youth and, and young uh, boys to sort of um, be an honorable male citizen or celebrate the creation of this honorable male um, citizen. You also show that throughout the 20th century, coaches, uh, equipment managers and manufacturers, and even doctors were much more concerned with um, saving the game um, than they were with young boys' safety. And, and um, this in the, is in the context of um, injuries from, suffered by young boys that range from concussions to broken bones to even death. Um, my question is, do you think any of this has changed today? To me, it seems it's actually maybe even much more pronounced in today's sort of hyper-commercialized um, kind of pipeline to, to professional sport. Yeah, I mean, I think actually a lot of this has been exacerbated, and it actually goes back to earlier in the conversation um, with the observation that it's so striking here to see in the United States, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old uh, boys playing tackle football, how unique that seems. And something that was really striking to me when I was doing the research for the book is that um, high school and college football is much older in the United States uh, than Pop Warner sort of elementary, middle school age football. So in the 1950s, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics saw the sort of beginning of the, the football leagues for younger boys beginning to emerge. And they made a recommendation against both tackle football and boxing for children under age 12. And I was absolutely fascinated by that uh, because um, I think at that point, high school football was sort of so entrenched in American education that the pediatricians weren't about to recommend against football for high school age children, but because uh, football for younger children was relatively new, I think they sort of hoped that they might be able to put the brakes on it. Obviously, they failed. Uh, no one listened to the pediatricians. And in fact, football just grew enormously popular for elementary, middle school age children. But the reason I, I found that to be such an interesting piece of the history was that that was also the time when sports medicine was emerging, emerging as a specialty. And sports medicine doctors, unlike pediatricians, were much more likely to say that football could be acceptable for young children um, as long as they had medical supervision and coaching supervision. And I think with um, the growth of sports medicine, with the growth of the National Football League, which around that time was beginning to overtake baseball in many ways um, and sort of launching football to, to be the national pastime in some senses. Um, and then obviously also the increase of college scholarships and the NCAA. Mm -hmm. I think all of those trends combined to, to sort of further uh, entrench football at all levels and, and to sort of expand it to younger ages and the same narratives that had developed around high school and college football of this being a sport that taught particular male values, that taught discipline and grit and character building and, and many other such ideas, these were simply extended in many ways to 
the seven and eight year olds who are increasingly uh, playing in football leagues as well. That actually brings me to to my next question that had to do with your your treatment of masculinity in the book. I think this was a really um, a big sort of figure and prominent figure in your book. And and I'm interested in getting your thoughts on what are the like large scale public health problems that kind of manifest when you teach young boys how to be this sort of model citizen through a hyper-aggressive, violent, hegemonic, masculine sport like football? Yeah, such a great question. I think I should start by saying um, I my original training is as, as an injury prevention, as an injury epidemiologist. And I sort of look back when I first went into that field, and I wasn't particularly thinking about gender at all. But it's impossible to study injury in public health and not ultimately confront questions of gender. Um, and in particular, in football, the the message, one of the big messages and, and narratives um, that I came across was this idea that injury is, in some sense, is a good thing. It's a badge of honor. Um, and there were lines from quote, uh, quotes from coaches along the lines of, it does not hurt to get hurt. That's actually one of the things we're trying to teach boys is to, mm-hmm. to quote the pain um, and that that's a good thing. And so the, the culture uh, that kind of grows up around that is very much one of not reporting injury, not reporting symptoms, um, and being celebrated as a hero for playing through injuries. And this is particularly challenging when it comes to an injury like a traumatic brain injury, because it's not nearly as obvious as a broken bone. It's not something that sort of necessarily immediately prevents you from continuing to play the sport. It's not something everybody can see from the stands. It's in many ways an invisible injury, and it's much easier to hide symptoms that are, you know, dizziness or a headache um, or vision issues, things of that nature. Um, and so to me, in some ways, this was the perfect storm because you have a, a sport that inherently involves repeated collisions and you have a culture around that sport that's directly instructing children to not report those kinds of symptoms and to celebrate playing through pain. Um, and that's just the perfect storm for having a host of unreported uh, brain injuries. And that's, I think, what we see in youth football. Yeah. Now, I mean, look, it, it makes sense, uh, especially given the kind of um, dimensions of masculinity you're discussing, why, you know, a player wouldn't uh, report an injury, would try to play through an injury, would have an investment in, you know, feigning not being hurt. But that's a little bit different than um, the idea of actual medical practitioners treating head injury as if they are perhaps not as significant as we've been discussing. Uh, so that's what I want to get into next. The question of whether there are, in fact, debates among medical practitioners that complicate the picture that we've been talking through so far. Um, after all, your Atlantic passage also alludes to, quote, the feigned ignorance of the physical harms associated with the sport. Another way of saying this might be, why isn't, beyond this masculinity question, why isn't football more widely understood as a menace to public health? This is a question I am still wrestling with in some ways. Um, It's a really good one. And it's it's one, I, I guess the comparison is always inevitable with boxing. 
But one of the questions that I struggled with as I was doing this research was why were the risks of boxing sort of accepted, at least for children, in the way that the risks of football weren't? Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended against boxing for children. There's very few medical practitioners who are advising that kids box. Um, but we've had for decades um, a sort of celebration of, of football as sort of a wholesome and health-promoting activity for young boys. I think there is a mix of um, genuine belief in the benefits of football and economic interests at play. Um, there's very much a narrative that grew up in, in the 50s and 60s in particular that what was really needed was adult supervision. So football could be made safe as long as you had um, sports medicine doctors and coaches on the sidelines overseeing it. The narrative was as long as you match up boys um, who are of a similar size and weight and sort of have instruction and quote unquote proper tackling techniques and other kinds of supervision of that nature, that adults could manage the risks. Um, I don't think it's possible for adults to truly manage the risks of repeated collisions among children, but I think there were a number of coaches and, and physicians who genuinely believed that. Of course, there's also some real self-interest there because recommending more adult supervision is basically doctors and coaches saying what we really need are more doctors and coaches. Um, but regardless that, I think I, I sort of saw a mix. I, one of the challenges in writing the book for me was I saw language about the risks that just seemed so blatantly inaccurate from our perspective today in 2020 of, of coaches and, and sports medicine doctors stating that they could sort of manage the risks in these ways. And it was very challenging for me to determine to what extent did they really believe that was the case. Um, I think in some cases they genuinely believed it. Um, I also think there's something about the nature of football um, where the collisions, they're, they're, you can sort of mask a little bit the, the essence of the sport being a collision sport in a way that you can't with boxing. In boxing, the goal is to knock the other person out. In football, on the other hand, there's certainly elements of the sport, this running and passing, um, where I think you could sort of say, well, there's other things going on here too. Um, so I think there's there's a bit of that mixed in as well. Uh, so I don't know that I've fully been able to answer the question, but I think uh, there's sort of a bunch of aspects here, the nature of the sport, the way it got tied to educational institutions, which football became so deeply tied to high school and college in ways that boxing never was. Um, and the sort of mix of self-interest and I think genuine belief in these particular narratives of masculinity and teaching boys to be men um, and narratives of what medicine can and can't do. I think all of those combined to allow doctors in, in, some, in some cases, I think, to genuinely believe they were capable of managing the risks. And in other cases, as I wrote, um, to sort of feign ignorance uh, of what these risks were. Now, do you think that this this has this is like some something to do with like a cognitive dissonance 
happening or is it more of a, a, a kind of intentional, um, sometimes uh, intentional kind of just ignorance to either looking up what real facts are and like what the real evidence suggests or just completely trying to put that away to like kind of with or uphold the game and, and keep the game um, going. I think it's a bit of cognitive dissonance and a bit of just, well, the game can't be wrong. So the problem must be the player. Mm. Um, I, I came across just as an example of this, um, there were there was a symposium in the early 1960s on football injuries where there were several very renowned um, sports medicine physicians who stated that they thought there was such a thing as an injury-prone player, and they effectively blamed boys who didn't want to play football as being more likely to get injured. And they said, well, mm-hmm. they're the ones that are timid, they're afraid of the hits, and they really don't actually want to be playing. Maybe it was their parents that made them sign up or, you know, peer pressure or whatever it was. And they're the ones that are more likely to get injured. And in fact, you know, because of their their unhappiness playing football, maybe they'll pretend they have a headache. And it was very disturbing to read. And you think, well, maybe that headache is a brain injury symptom. Um, but I think I think there there really was this belief among some physicians that, you know, this is an excellent sport. And the, the players who are getting injured, either there's something wrong with the player that they don't have the right attitude or they don't have the right coaching um, or they don't have the right medical oversight. Um, I also think, I mean, there's certainly an acceptance of a certain level of injury. There's, there was clearly awareness of, you know, broken bones and um, torn knee ligaments. And those were sort of accepted as part of the game. However, I think the issue with brain trauma, because it's it's often cumulative and because many of the harms aren't manifesting themselves until, you know, several years or, or even decades down the road, um, it was easier in some ways to sort of not see those risks. If you're coaching somebody for four years, you might focus much more on the knee injury or the shoulder injury that immediately prevents your player from joining the the game next week, um, but not necessarily have to confront in quite the same way um, the implications of the brain trauma for that player 20 years down the road. You know, we, you've been talking especially about the historical perspective here, which makes sense. Uh, you are a historian. Um, I am neither a historian or a scientist, uh, but I am, <laughs> yeah, what am I really? But um, I am someone who's really concerned today, right, about how um, knowledge is being produced or not produced and, and how that kind of intersects with the ethics of the questions we've been discussing here, right? And what, what I'm really trying to say is, you know, for instance, Boston University has been producing a lot of really damning knowledge about the harm associated with the kind of head injury we've been discussing, right? The brain bank they have, the, the studies of um, Dr. Anne McKee and all of her colleagues there have been you know, giving us findings, I think I've mentioned them before in this show, but like findings like the fact that in, in their study of, in 2017, I believe it was, uh, 99% of the NF, former NFL players in their sample had evidence of CTE. Um, we found more rec- in the more recent study in 2019 um, that the chances of um, potentially contracting CTE um, 
double every uh, 2.6 years of participation, I believe it is. Um, so that seems terrifying uh, and like it bolsters everything that you've been saying in this conversation so far, right? Um, and yet it does not seem like this is the consensus of the medical establishment, even in the fields of study, you know, neurology and so forth, who are tasked with producing knowledge about what constitutes a public health threat, right? Um, and the way, again, I'm not a scientist, but the way it seems to me that it manifests typically is uh, rather than making a claim like we have a lot of data that suggests that this is enough of a threat that we need to take action to protect our young people at the very least. What we instead hear is we don't really know enough and we need to learn more and we need more studies. And until we have more data, I mean, why should we change anything, right? And compromise all these institutions that we've established around this game. Um, I find this to be really dispiriting. Um, and I also feel that this is something that's actually quite complicated for those of us working in the academy because there are all sorts of weird ways in which complicity starts to sort of develop here, right? Because these structures are not all separate from each other. Um, and there are some more questions I want to get to soon, but I'm just curious what your thoughts might be on that kind of larger picture. Yes, that's a really uh, important aspect of this. Um, so there are huge conflicts of interest in a lot of brain injury research. And I do think it's worth noting uh, that the NFL is still one of the biggest funders of research into brain injury in sports. I mean, they have some of the deepest pockets and some of the, the biggest stakes in this. Um, but it's not even always necessarily a matter of the money coming directly from the NFL. Um, research is often done uh, in, this, in this space by researchers who are team physicians, who work you know, with their institutions, um, athletic departments, uh, who are sort of embedded in within the system. And I do think there is that that status quo bias as well. So there's the, the sort of conflict of interest of sort of directly working for um, the NFL or, or other leagues. And then there's also that sort of broader structural issue of working within the larger sort of sports system that we have. And I, I think that's been a problem for decades, but I think it's gotten exacerbated in the last, last I guess, 10 or 15 years or so, um, just because the, the money and the stakes have gotten that much higher. Um, the, the college sports medicine landscape in particular, and this is also true at the NFL level, is a really complicated one. Um, you don't just have this sort of doctor making the recommendation. You also have the coach and the athletic trainer, and it's it's kind of a, a web of stakeholders there. Um, and it's, it's really hard to get research into brain injuries in sport that has sort of a true independence from that system. Uh, and I think that's why you're sort of seeing what you're seeing, is that um, there is not, I don't think, enough independent research. We don't have enough funding from the National Institute of Health or 
other public health agencies um, that is truly able to, to support the kind of independent research that's needed. And then I think there's even a bigger question that perhaps you were alluding to, um, which is, well, how much more research do we need in some cases to tell us? Yes. yes. Um, so I think there's that question as well. And so the, the point that you made of the, it was often called manufacture of doubt, but this idea that, well, we, we need lots more studies to tell us certain things. I think we actually know enough to do, to make certain changes. Um, and I think that also is a very important tension that I often see between a public health perspective versus perhaps uh, a clinical or a sort of sports medicine perspective. Um, the public health perspective, which is much more of a preventive one, is that you don't wait for that randomized control trial um, to prove harm. You mm-hmm. might say, I've got enough compelling preliminary evidence that I want to act now um, because I want to prevent potential harm. And I think these preliminary studies are enough compelling evidence of that. Um, So the question of what the standard of evidence for action should be, I think is also baked into this as well. Um, And I think the sort of status quo bias tends to be setting the standard extremely high uh, before making any changes. And I, to my mind, it's an unreasonably high standard for the very reason that some of the most rigorous study designs we have are just not ethically appropriate. We are never going to have a randomized control trial where we say, let's have eight-year-olds in one group get hit over and over again, and eight-year-olds in the other group not get hit in the head over and over again, and follow them for 50 years and see what happens. That would not be an ethical study, and we shouldn't have to do that study. Yeah. Um, so I think that's another really important issue, um, which is going to have to be decided uh, socially as well as sort of not just hopefully ideally by sports medicine practitioners or um, by leagues, but as a society as a whole, we, we will need to be thinking about, well, what evidence do we need to, to act? You raise some very, very interesting um, points here, particularly when you're talking about like the standard or the the burden of proof. And it, it seems like um, it doesn't matter what you sort of throw at the NFL or at minor uh, or P- pop Warner football coaches or managers or whomever that it won't matter. Um, and I've often thought of this conflict of interest um, issue um, I've thought about the same in terms of legal challenges or the same as I do about legal challenges to, to amateurism in the NHL or in the NCAA, sorry. Um, these judges often go to big time collegiate sport programs and get their, uh, get their law degrees. So I often think about like, how can they be impartial? How can they actually be um, acting in accordance with legal manifestations when they actually have to, like, they want to turn on the television on Saturday and watch their alma mater? So I'm constantly thinking about these same issues when it comes to um, the head trauma research and, in particular, any sort of researchers who go to these programs or go to schools and get awarded degrees from these big-time schools and then, like, 
can we even expect them to turn around and um, and and critique the system and provide evidence to take down something that they may have been socialized into thinking is like the best thing, um, the best sort of uh, mechanism of social cohesion and socialization and providing all these fond memories. So what I'm trying to get at is there's so many barriers to the acceptance of any evidence that suggests that we should not be playing this game of football. And I always come back to the question, and I want to just raise this very simple question um, to you because I feel like there'll be an amazing answer. Is change even possible? I think it is. I think it's possible. Um, I think it's going to be a long, hard slog, but I think it's possible. Um, Inevitably, a public health person always ends up making a comparison to cigarettes at some point in the conversation. And I guess there's an opportunity for that. Um, But it's stunning when you look back at, you know, movies from the 1940s and 1950s and the, the numbers of Americans who were smoking and how just deeply embedded smoking was in American culture at that time. Um, and it really was a stunning a public, public health achievement to have more than halved the number of Americans who smoke. And we also don't have people smoking on airplanes anymore or in hospitals, mm-hmm. um, all of which used to be considered a completely acceptable and normal part of life. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's also fair to say you could also look at this as a somewhat of a failure because we've known for decades of the very significant harms of smoking and yet still something like one in five or one in six adults continue to smoke despite decades of education campaigns, despite banning smoking in all kinds of indoor and even outdoor locations, um, despite taxes, despite a whole host of public health interventions. Uh, So I think for me, change is possible, but it requires an enormous amount of effort and widespread intervention on many levels, a lot of time, and with the expectation that it's not going to be just a complete um, 180, but that instead you'll have to accept at least some amount of changes progress. Now, what that might look like for football, um, I think it's very possible to see parents gradually moving towards flag, at least for the youngest kids, to see more leagues say, well, at least for age six, seven, eight, maybe we should start out with flag and hold off on tackling until age nine or 10. And even that I would regard as a small piecemeal victory. Um, That would be cutting out three or four years of exposure if you wait even for three or four years before starting to tackle to those particular risks. Um, I also think it's very possible that we're going to see uh, changes when it comes to what insurance companies are willing to cover. Um, Institutions may be looking at the costs of football and depressingly, even though I would much rather the health risks be the, the driving force and change, I do think the financial aspect may be a driver as well. And I also think um, there is a a gradual shift in attitudes. So I think change is possible. Um, 
On the other hand, I definitely don't think football is disappearing overnight either. And I'm also very concerned that what we might see, which would also be similar to what we saw with cigarettes, is that the people who are more likely to be exposed to those risks will be the more vulnerable people. We're already in that situation with football, but I can see us going yet further in that direction um, where the people who are primarily taking on these brain injury risks are poor, are minorities, um, are vulnerable people. Um, and that makes it in many ways even more ethically concerning than it is at this, at this moment. That's a great point. Um, and actually, a couple of years ago on Democracy Now!, Harry Edwards made that precise point about the fact that he, he envisioned that we would be seeing the NFL as an almost exclusively black league, not because um, of a lack of understanding about the risks of football in some com communities compared to others, but rather strictly because of the structural racism in U.S. society, um, which is, I think, exactly the kind of thing that you're getting at with that point. Um, not just about race. Obviously, we're talking about class and other forms of inequality here. But um, yeah, I think that's a very real uh, and devastating risk that we're looking at. Uh, and I also want to make the point really quickly that I'm with you. Flag football is fun. <laughs> we forget about that sometimes. Like this idea that's like just totally unimaginable, unthinkable that we could turn to flag football because part of the problem is that really the popularity of football is not about the, the game. At this point, it's not about how fun the game is. Certainly, I don't think. It's not about the character building dimensions anymore in quite the same way, right? Or even the masculinity, the social cohesion, no, it's about the commodity spectacle, right? And I think we all understand that. It's about what people watching the game want to see and the fact that they don't want to see flag football and the, the remarkable amount of revenue um, in college and in the pros that are being produced by the current form of tackle football. Um, you know, they require those feeder systems and everything else that you've been describing. Uh, and that's what's really driving it at this point. And that's what's so hard to shake. Um, but you know, another thread that's been running throughout this whole conversation, and it's also something you were talking about before that I desperately want to come back to, uh, are the questions of ethics, research ethics, informed consent, generally. And you made a really interesting point, which was that um, when you were talking about the public health imperative, right, around football and the fact, like, the, the, basically the question of how much more information do we actually need at this point to act? Uh, and you said, you know, like, we can't actually produce ethical studies, right? For, chi for children, testing children and the amount of harm that they're being subjected to and everything else. And I mean, I absolutely agree with you about that. And in fact, I want to pose a kind of, so I want to pull it back again now to college football and to pose a fairly concrete example of a sort of ethical quandary I see that I frankly don't see people talking about very much when it comes to informed consent, but it's something that I've been thinking about um, for the last, you know, I don't know, half year or so. So here's the thing. Um, it seems to me that as well-intentioned as it may be, and I, I believe that it's well-intentioned in many cases. Now, I don't think it's well-intentioned. You kind of got at the conflict of interest piece here. When, when the NFL is involved or the Department of Defense, I'm not convinced that's well-intentioned. Absolutely not. But I think that for a lot of college researchers, right, like university professors, scientists who are doing research on U.S. campuses and Canadian campuses, I think that those folks are primarily interested in producing, uh, in, in improving health conditions 
uh, and working conditions and safety conditions and whatever else for athletes at whatever level of football we're talking about. I mean, I believe that that's true. So in that sense, I think that there's a well-intentioned disposition to many. Studying, I still think, though, that studying college football players for the purposes of learning more about the epidemiology of head injury is almost an inherent violation of human research subject ethics. And this is what I mean by that. The research into concussion is predicated on, you know, a highly educated hypothesis. Like, this is what we've been talking about. We have lots of data, right? Like you were saying, enough that from a public health standpoint, maybe we could actually act based on that, right? So clearly that's informing the further research that's being done. Um, So again, there's a great deal of empirical data there that football causes head injury and that those injuries lead to a range of deleterious consequences. Concussion research, in some cases, requires essentially subjecting a so-called student-athlete, and for us, always so-called student-athlete, I like campus athletic worker, to harm they have not yet experienced, that's really key for me, in order to procure data ostensibly meant to protect other athletes. That is already a major question mark for me, since my understanding of research involving human subjects is that it should not cause harm at all, right? So again, the fact that we might say, um, let's outfit a player who's going on the field with, um, with instruments that will allow us to study the harm when it happens, if it happens, right? For that research to be possible, you have to take a person who has not been subjected to a concussion and, and ultimately subject, put them into conditions that will subject them to a concussion. So the harm is a necessary part of the research, harm that did not yet happen. Okay, so that's my first thing. Um, then the additional piece that comes with that for me based on, are based on inform, um, informed consent forms for a study from, uh, a 2000, sorry, from a 2006 study at a major Research One concussion center in the United States I had a chance to examine. Basically, I had a chance to look at the informed consent form. What I was astounded to see there in that study was A, that it makes no mentions at all of the harms associated with football. Like it talks about the harm associated with the study, i.e. additional harm that like having your helmet outfitted with whatever instruments might cause you harm in some weird way. Um, not, not a big issue, okay? But like it would seem to be kind of incumbent upon the researchers to mention to the people that you're requiring to be harmed in order for you to do a study in the first place, to possibly mention to those individuals like about something about CTE perhaps or traumatic brain injury or the harm of being a participant in football since the entire study relies upon that, but nothing whatsoever. And B, and this was beyond belief for me, it explicitly waived the responsibility of researchers for any harm produced by the study. So they actually explicitly said that if this study causes you harm, you are relieving researchers of any responsibility for any kind of insurance costs or anything else. So the whole thing strikes me as patently unethical. An institution both producing revenue and research through the physical sacrifice of unpaid students. Right, that's what we really see here. I'm curious what you make of such practices, which I can only assume are prevalent across the country. I think there are huge ethical problems, as you've just described. I mean, I think we've sort of fundamentally flow from the big question of should an institution whose mission is educating students or whose mission should be 
educating students, um, be sponsoring sports with known high risks of brain trauma. Um, and I think a lot of the, the paradoxes and ethical problems kind of flow from that. Uh, but I, I mean, I also think your point is, is very well taken about the vulnerability of the students in this um, kind of research. We often talk about vulnerable pop populations when you're thinking about institutional review boards, which are um, intended to, to oversee research ethics and determine whether research is, you know, acceptable. And, and those kinds of populations can include uh, prisoners, uh, pregnant women, children. And I think students very much fall under that category. It's very hard to to say, no, I won't partici participate in the study if it's your coach or your athletic trainer who's um, enrolling you in the study or who's encouraging you to participate. And I also think, as you point out, the informed consent forms are wholly inadequate, um, that they don't actually genuinely inform students of the risks associated with, with the research. Um, I, it's the question of harm is a really important one. Um, it's not the case necessarily that human subject research should never cause any harm whatsoever. Sometimes it does, but only when people are fully informed of the potential harms and are able to fully consent to them. I mean, we can certainly, uh, we'll be talking more about COVID-19, but uh, in terms of studying potential vaccines, there will be human subjects research that will be asking participants, are you willing to potentially consent to the, in some cases, not fully known yet, risks of a vaccine um, that we're just trying out? And that's going to be necessary to, to learn about a vaccine. Um, but those kinds of studies are only ethical when you are genuinely in need of that knowledge, and we genuinely need knowledge of, of a COVID vaccine right now. Um, and when you're making sure that the participants are fully, fully informed of what those risks might be and are able to consent to them. And I don't think those standards hold um, when we are looking at this kind of concussion research. Um, we don't have participants who are fully informed. We don't necessarily have participants who are able to freely consent without outside undue influences uh, when they are in the structural position that they are in as, as students, often dependent on scholarships and, and dependent on their position on the team. Um, and then we're also not in the same kind of position uh, in terms of the state of our knowledge. We actually already know a lot about the harms of concussion and we know that they, they have significant short-term um, and long-term health impacts that are very deleterious. Um, and that is actually another count uh, against doing that kind of research. Part of what makes um, randomized control trials ethical is a, is a principle known as equipoise, which is when you genuinely don't know what the harms of something are. So when you generally don't know yet, and you need a randomized uh, control trial to learn about the risks and benefits of a vaccine, then that kind of potential harm is more justified. But when you 
already know that something is harmful, it's not ethically acceptable to continue to subject participants to it. That's that's a brilliant distinction that you made, and I I, I really um, you've really clarified even for me it, why that um, that form I was looking at that particular example was so galling. Um, I think living through this pandemic right now, it really kind of casts in relief or puts in perspective for all of us what really urgent risk is um, for those of us who were not subjected to it previously in the same kind of way. Uh, and clearly that, that football context that we've been talking about, right? It's just, it's just, it shouldn't be comparable in terms of how we're talking about these kind of issues. Um, and yet um, we are somehow currently operating as if it's, it's acceptable to um, subject individuals to harm in that context. Uh, and the reason for that is, as per usual, you know, capital, ultimately, and who, who stands to benefit and, and who doesn't from all of this. Uh, and that really brings me to the next area. I mean, you have, you have like countless areas of expertise, I feel like. So there's so many things to jump to. And one thing that you've been working on a lot, it seems to me recently, um, is the kind of way in which... Um, you know, the increased attention around concussions uh, has been monetized. That is, we have seen, uh, as of course any decent critic of capitalism might expect, the proliferation of what you have called pseudoscientific solutions. In a co-authored Lancet neurology piece, you wrote, quote, growing concerns about concussion from parents, athletes, and sports organizations have also fostered an environment ripe for dubious product claims for concussion prevention and treatment, as well as the more nebulous concept of brain protection. The increasing availability of such products cultivates an inflated sense of safety in inherently high-risk sports and distracts from evidence-based strategies to address brain injuries. End quote. Can you explain how concussion science has been commodified essentially, for me, as snake oil, uh, and perhaps also indicate why it is in fact so difficult to authentically produce meaningful therapeutic interventions. Sure. So um, I think this is, it's sort of the, the dark side of growing awareness of concussion risk. So I obviously think it's a, a hugely beneficial development over the last 10 years or so that there's been such an increase in public awareness that you know, brain injuries are not just seeing stars, they're not just getting your bell rung, this is a serious injury, it's something to be concerned about. But obviously, the, the downside is that there have been unethical practitioners um, who have preyed upon those concerns to, to market uh, snake oil. And um, I will take a very specific example of one of my least favorite products, because I think it really exemplifies this. Um, it's something known as brain armor. And uh, it was advertised in Pop Warner magazine. So this is a magazine aimed at young football players and their parents. Um, it had one of those sort of sort of classic endorsements from a former uh, professional football player and incredibly vague language, something along the lines of, I had no idea it was so easy to protect my brain. And they've got this, this bottle, this drink. Um, with the name brain armor, which is clearly implying that this can help, you know, protect against brain injury. Um, and what I was really appalled to see was that um, the the medical advisor for Pop Warner 
little scholars was also on the advisory board for brain armor so some of the same people that are advising the sports leagues are also um to my mind cashing in on some of these products um and this is something that makes me very very angry um because i think it's 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 just completely unacceptable to be portraying any kind of beverage as having any kind of effect against uh, a brain injury. And there's certainly been other very sort of pseudoscientific type products as well, you know, be they concussion collars or, or um, other kinds of of products that are supposedly minimizing brain injury risks. Um, But to take the the credibility that one has with uh, an MD or a PhD or other kind of advanced degree or position and to use that to market a product that truly cannot help prevent against a brain injury and uh, even worse, maybe lending a false sense of security and maybe leading athletes to be even less likely to seek attention because they think they can solve their problem of of a headache or dizziness or other symptom by by drinking this drink has just been appalling to see. Um, And I think part of why we both see the snake oil and part of why it's so hard to produce therapeutic interventions goes back to brain injuries just being so hard to treat. Um, this is not something you can patch up by, uh, you know, creating uh, a little piece of titanium the way you can create a new knee or, you know, create a new ligament for somebody. Um, it's, it's just, the brain is an incredibly complicated organ. Um, and it's, really hard to treat these injuries. We still don't understand why, for example, one person might have a concussion with relatively minimal symptoms that resolve within a few days, whereas another person may have symptoms that linger for weeks and months. There's so much we still don't understand, and it's an incredibly frustrating condition to have. Um, It can really impede people's ability, you know, to, to work or to study in school or whatever else it is they may be doing. So I think you have people who are understandably desperate for some kind of solution um, and are vulnerable to quick fixes uh, because there truly is no genuine quick fix to treating a brain injury. Um, so it's it's a really ugly dynamic that's gotten worse, I think, in the last couple years. Uh, and I would love to see much better regulation of of some of the claims that are being made because they're incredibly misleading. Yeah, absolutely. And before we um before we conclude, I had this little Freudian slip earlier with the NHL, but that was in anticipation of this relatively long-winded question I have about hockey, which I know is not really the focus of much of your work, but you mentioned it earlier and I see a lot of similarities between football and hockey, particularly in the context of athletic violence, which is a sort of overarching theme of this podcast. Um, In 2011, Deputy Commissioner of the National Hockey League, Big Bill Daly, um, recognized for the first time this link between fighting and mental and physical health issues. Um, When he suggested, and I'm quoting, um, fighting raises incidents of head injuries, which raises incidents of depression onset, which raises incidents of personal tragedies. 
end quote. And the tragedies he was referring to were the deaths of three NHL um, enforcers, Derek Bugard, Rick Ripien, um, and Wade Bielak, who all died tragically in a span of four months and whose deaths were ultimately linked to CTE. Um, now, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman has also repeatedly endorsed violence in, in hockey, noting that eliminating fighting and banning on-ice violence would rid the game of something that players and fans feel is, uh, again I'm quoting, an exciting, appealing, and entertaining part of the game. Now, in my view, um, this is the league's longtime commissioner suggesting that creating a safer work environment for players by abolishing fighting would actually negatively impact athletic workers and perhaps more importantly, the bottom line of the game itself. So my question to you is based on everything you've learned throughout your research on football, what the hell is wrong with Gary Bettman and the rest of the NHL? Um, are they not listening? Are they ignorant? Are they corrupt? Are they evil? Or are they all of the above? I think they might be all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> it's been actually really stunning to see another league in some sense outdo the NFL, but I think the NHL has managed to um, because at a minimum, the NFL has at least acknowledged perhaps there is some link between repeated brain trauma and CT, mm -hmm. and they have at a minimum, as as limited as they are, implemented some kind of you know concussion protocols. Whereas um, the NHL, I think, is still largely taking the approach of denial um, and treating the players as truly expendable. Um, it's it's pretty hard for me to understand that without corruption being some part of that. Um, mm -hmm. but, I don't know if anyone can truly fully explain what's wrong with Gary Bettman. Now, okay, so thank you for that. I, I, I definitely am of the opinion that's kind of all of the above, and I've written some some negative, um, some negative words about Gary Bettman, Bettman in my own career. But I, I, I really wanted to get at, and this is I, we're reaching the end. I know we've had you for a while, and so thank you for taking the time um, out. But I wanted to ask you a question related to COVID nineteen. Um, and what I perceive as a sort of um, notable and important focus on health in the public sphere. And this is just in general. I think health is this, public health is a sort of new, um, really interesting, hot topic. And it seems to me, and please correct me if you feel differently, that there is um, this explicit responsibility on institutions, organizations, corporations, and government to keep us all healthy um, as we kind of open things back up after the first wave of the pandemic. Yet athletic labor seems to be the first thing that we're willing to throw under the bus when it comes to, uh, to, public, to public health. Um, now, this seems to follow a similar trajectory to what I see as our public health to violent sport and head trauma, that we accept the, the risk or the public health risk of head trauma in the context of sport and athletic labor, but not elsewhere, not when it goes outside of the athletic laborers. Now, I could go on all day critiquing this approach, and I think we have um, quite distinctly today. But I'm wondering um, if there's even a little bit of optimism about what is happening in the current discourse surrounding public health. Could we see a renewed dialogue happening around athletic labor? And in particular, 
a renewed interest in paying actual attention to the health of athletic laborers after this pandemic is all said and done? I hope so. I, I actually hope there might be some, some room for optimism here in the long term. I think the nature of an infectious disease is sort of forcing a confrontation of the reality that was always there, but that nobody's health exists in a bubble. Um, yeah. But with COVID-19, that sort of brought into even starker relief. Um, and in particular, when thinking about reopening and what that means for athletics, the athlete's health is also going to affect the health of the staff, of their family that they interact with, of the fans that come attend the game, of the people who are you know, selling concessions, that, that everybody who's a part of, of this community effectively, or this, this uh, network is affected and therefore has a stake in the health of, of those that they're interacting with. Um, I have been concerned to see um, what I see is a, a sort of rush to try to find a way to, to sort of fill stadiums again, and to, <laughs> you know, to, to try to, to bring sports back as soon as possible, which I do fear is, is sort of made possible by this longer history of of failing to prioritize athlete health um but i think there's been significant pushback both from fans and from players themselves and we've certainly seen i think the mlb being one example we've seen you know mm -hmm. several baseball players kind of pushing back and and their family members pushing back saying you know i have a, an immunocompromised family member that I live with or, you know, another person who's vulnerable and I'm not willing to put their health as at risk as well as my own by rushing back. And my hope is that um, through athletes and their family members sort of pushing back and through fans hearing these stories and hopefully wanting to support the health of their beloved players, I'm hoping that there might be some room for optimism here in terms of thinking about more broadly about how do we actually, what does it actually mean to try to prioritize athlete health? Now, that might be a silver lining right now, um, given everything else that um, is a, an enormous health challenge that we're having to deal with. But I do hope long term that there might be some some room for optimism there. Yeah, well, I appreciate that optimism and uh, loved your shout out to the uh, baseball players who have been speaking back. That's something that we've been um, talking a little bit about uh, on this show as well. That's that struck me, too. But I want to push you just a bit more because I, I, what I really want to know, we really we haven't had someone who is uh, basically an epidemiologist uh, and sort of someone who does epidemiology and sport on the show before. Uh, and so, you know, Derek and I spitball about restarting and, uh, you know, based on our more sociological perspective, we have, you know, repeatedly said that we consider this to be um, an absolutely uh, kind of unconscionable health risk for all the reasons you just described. Uh, and so we, you know, we have therefore viewed it as a symptom of this dehumanizing attitude to um, workers in the context of sport, broadly speaking, all of which, you know, we've just been covering. But what we really can't speak to in any kind of intelligent way uh, is what should happen. You know, as we see the news unfold and we see the things I cited earlier, like the NCAA talking about restarting with athletes right now, even though it doesn't seem safe to have students on campus, 
or we see the sort of MLB plans um, to rush people back, all this sort of stuff. The idea that we'd have 30,000 fans in a football stadium in the near future, right? Like it's very obvious, I think, to many why those things are a problem. But what is not as obvious to at least me is what is the less problematic approach? Like if, if I was to kind of push you to say, in this moment, and it's, we, can't, we cannot predict the future, and I understand that. But if you're kind of trying to imagine a future that seems humane for a return to sport, what does that look like to you at this point? Oh, well, at this point, I don't think we have much return to sport. I think in the months ahead, what has to happen at a minimum is massive, massive testing infrastructure. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think we're there yet, and I actually don't even think we're quite there yet in other countries that have are sort of in a much better place than we are right now in the United States. So I think, I guess the example I'm having in my mind right now is um, in Germany, the the soccer league uh, has just started reopening, and they've had massive testing, um, and they also have uh, much, at least relative to where the United States is at, a much smaller outbreak there. Um, but they actually ended up having to postpone their reopening because two weeks ago they, they did testing, I think, of almost 2,000 people in their 36 teams, and they found 10 players who had the virus. So they said, wait, we have to, we have to hold off on this. Um, and I guess that really struck me because I thought, gosh, if, if Germany can't sort of confidently proceed with this yet, we're just not really ready. Um, I think longer term, if you can get the outbreak to be much smaller, it would be possible with with serious public health infrastructure of test, trace, isolate, and support to envision some kind of um, return to sport along the lines of what the Bundesliga is doing. Um, but I just don't think we're there yet because we the outbreak at this moment is just too big. And the public health infrastructure is not there. And it's just incredibly hard. Just the way that people live lives in society, I think it's incredibly hard to create a genuine bubble. You can try as much as you can, but you're still going to have staff members and staff members with families um, and, and asking people to sort of isolate themselves for the entire length of a season from all of their loved ones is, is a huge, huge ask. So I just don't think I don't think we're there to be able to do this in a humane and safe way. Um, I hope we might be in months ahead if we do a better job of bringing the uh, case numbers down and improving the public health infrastructure. But I don't even think um, Germany's there yet, and I definitely don't think the United States is is close to being there yet. Well. Derek tried to end us on an upbeat note, but uh, I managed to steal his thunder there and get us right back to the bleak pessimism that is um, our hallmark. So thank you for that, uh, Kathleen, uh, because I, I actually, I mean, joking aside, like I, I think it's really important for people to hear that 
very candid assessment of where we stand, right? Because the, fr- the fact is that that's not what we're getting in the news media, right? We're getting all of this both-sidedism, uh, or frankly, like we just, you know, we get, you get ESPN essentially reporting what the leagues are saying, right? And that becomes sort of fact in terms of what we're supposed to accept as, or becomes normalized as acceptable and legitimate and appropriate and so forth. Or, you know, you see the Bundesliga and then once you start to see it, it becomes, again, more imaginable, right? And like, as you say, the conditions in Germany are not the same as in the United States. But even as a person in the United States watching that on television, that makes it seem so much more attainable here. Um, So your words of caution, I think, are critically necessary. Um, So thank you so much for that. And, And more importantly, thank you for all of your insight today. This was a really illuminating conversation. And we appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Kathleen Bushinsky. Thank you so much for the wonderful conversation. I so appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.